Hi, this is Dr. Nicole Tyson, and welcome to our June edition of the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology podcast. We will be joining Dr. Paula Hillard, the editor-in-chief, and our guest visitor will be Dr. Jen Dietrich, talking about one of her articles in the June's journal. Thank you and welcome. Well, welcome, Dr. Paula Hillard from uh, the editor of Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. I'm glad to be podcasting with you today. Thank you very much, Nicole. It's good to, to be with you as well. And uh, I'm, I'm eager to do another podcast. Oh, good. Well, we are um, have a nice little book review today. And we have a couple articles and a letter and response to the letter to discuss and we also have a guest uh, visitor coming to our podcast today, Dr. Dietrich from Baylor and Texas Children's Hospital. So that will be a welcome surprise. Not really a surprise. Welcome guest. So the book we had talked about reviewing is called The Street by Anne Petrie, if I say her name right, or Petrie. Um, and it was such a powerful book. I think I'm so glad you recommended it. It certainly uh, is a book of the times. Um, tell me, what did you think about it before I give my two cents? I thought it was an amazing book and, and such, a, such a wonderful writer. Um, the time is set in the 1940s in Harlem, an African-American um, woman who becomes really a single mom and, and has to make her way um, with really difficult times. And, and I thought the author did just such a masterful job of portraying every character. I felt as if I was, if, as if I were that character. I was inside the main character's head. I was inside the other character's heads. And I just thought that was, it was so well done. And uh, I think you said that you, you couldn't put it down. And I felt, felt the same way. Yeah, absolutely. It was just a great, it was actually not such a long novel, but somehow the characters you got to know so well, and she did such great character development, um, and you kind of love and hate them all, and it, you know, I mean, they're all just so complicated, so, but I was always rooting for Ludie, the, the heroine of the story, for sure. It's such a good book, so. Absolutely, and and the the messages and the the name of the book coming really from from the place and the idea that where you are um, is such a determinant of of how your life can be and your opportunities or lack of opportunities um, just were magnified and I think the main character identified the street where she she found the place to live as really a source of the troubles. Right. And all of her hurdles and all the characters on the street and their hurdles. And so it was very complicated. And, and uh, I don't know, I, I mentioned to you earlier, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Even after I finished it, it definitely stays with you. I think it might, it might kind of change your neurons a little bit and how you think about things. And it was good. It's a definitely well worth reading, especially in these times for all of us. I, I agree. And as I am reading and looking at, at films and such to try to become more of an anti-racist, um, I thought this was a really uh, important book. Yeah. So this would be a good one to add to the reading list. And I know we added this to our NASPAG uh, reading list recommendation as well. And that's on the NASPAG website. So this was a good choice. 
And I, I think we talked for next time, and I know this is kind of a big aspiration, but uh, to connect and read The Emperor of All Maladies. Um, it's a, that's a long one. It is a long <laughs> so. one, and I'm making my way through it, but we will see whether it's by the next podcast. We, we can aspire. <laughs> if we come up with something else, we'll post it on Instagram or something, if something comes up in between. Um, but that's sort of a, a great book that so many people have recommended that we share. So, um, And it's called The Emperor of All Maladies by um, Siddhartha Mukherjee, if, that, if I'm saying that name right. It's but it's Mukherjee. A, Mukherjee, okay. Um, so that will be maybe our podcast goal for next time. We'll shoot for that, or at least most of it. Um, so, okay, well, let's move on to our first article we were going to discuss, which I know is a topic near and dear to your heart, because we've talked about this coming out in the journal and uh, sort of the impact in our clinical practice, uh, Bones and Birth Control in Adolescent Girls uh, by Dr. Neville Golden, and he's from Stanford. He is. And Hooray. And this study does a really, really great job kind of comprehensively reviewing normal bone development during adolescence, which we all take so seriously, uh, ways to assess bone health, and then really outlines clearly all the different effects of different contraceptive options on bone health. Um, I, I think one of the things that's important to, po- to highlight and sort of focus on is that bone health in teens is assessed very differently than bone health in adults. You know, we are just advocates of our pediatric and adolescent patients that they're just not many adults. Um, so seeing low, low bone density can really be impactful in our young population. Um, what do you find yourself utilizing to help uh, assess bone health in your young patients? So I have learned so much from my colleague, Dr. Golden. Um, having been here at Stanford for the last uh, 13 years and, and working with Neville, um, bones are one of his passions. And, and I was so pleased when he agreed to write this review for us. Um, and he was eager to write it as well and, and the perfect person to, to write it overall. Um, I think there's several take-home points uh, about bone density and assessing bone density and even the words we use. Because in adults, we talk about osteopenia and osteoporosis, and we're not using those same terms for adolescents, or at least the terms are, are a little more stringent during adolescence because there is such growth and, and change in bone density over time. Um, Several messages. One is that we use the the Z score rather than the T score to compare um, when we get a, a DEXA uh, assessing bone bone density. So that's certainly one message. And then the message about terminology. We can talk about low bone density for age, but we're not talking about osteopenia or osteoporosis with. Right, exactly. So we're looking at peer groups when we're looking at these teens, um, so a little differently too. Uh, and then I think one of the really interesting things that he highlights that I think really will be impactful on how we take care of our teens is the impact of these low and ultra low dose birth control pills on bone density. Um, so tell us about that because I know you have been teaching that for a while now. I have been, and I find that this actually is um, not so well known by many of my colleagues in the family planning community. They just aren't, aren't uh, as up on this literature related to adolescence. But 
Um, I think that that Dr. Golden um, summarizes the literature quite well. The studies that look at bone density, and there are some crossover studies that, that look at bone density, comparing 30 microgram ethanol estradiol pills with those having less than 30 micrograms, and um, really showing that there are differences uh, in terms of, of appropriate accretion of bone. And, and even there may be some small effect on bone density, even with the 30 micrograms, but the major takeaway point is that we really shouldn't, on a routine basis, be going lower than 30 micrograms. The 20 microgram ethanol estradiol pills um, that were studied uh, did not compare favorably to the 30 microgram pills. And now we have pills that contain 10 micro micrograms <laughs> of ethanol estradiol. And that really is something to be avoided. And I see this all the time in the community, in part because uh, community physicians, both OBGYNs and pediatricians are wanting to be responsive to both the patients and the parents of our teen patients who say, well, obviously you're going to give her the lowest dose pill, aren't you? And <laughs> right. my answer is no, I'm not. I'm going to give her a low dose pill, but the lowest of the low dose pills are not appropriate for adolescents. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I think this article really highlights that in terms of bone as well. So that, that, that was a great takeaway from this. Uh, and I think he does a really good job reiterating the role of Depo-Provera and summarizing fracture risk after two years uh, and, and comprehensively talks about IUDs, implants, the ring, the patch. And it's just a great article focusing on bone health in teens, which there's just not a lot out there. So I thought this was great. Should be a reference. It's, it's certainly one of my um, often used references in my reference manager program. Yeah, excellent. Then the next article or the next discussion was really to talk about some letters and response to the editor, because I think this is such an engaging topic. It always comes up on the NASCAG listservs. This is where we get all of our calls from pediatricians. And so I'm just going to sort of summarize to get us to the, the letter to discuss but it's referring to the article called The Use of Norethisterone. North yeah, thank you. <laughs> For the treatment of severe uterine bleeding in adolescence, an audit of our experience. Um, and basically this, this article, oh, and you can pronounce the author's name too. Um, Dr. Let's Pap see. Papanagatau and, and their group. I think I said it I from I'm Greece. Not sure. I'm not sure. They are Greek. But just yes. before you go on, Nicole, and I, I appreciate um, that we are both struggling a bit with, with the names, but just for our listeners' knowledge, norethisterone is the same yes. thing that we call norethindrone. So right. we talk about norethindrone in the United States. The rest of the world talks about norethisterone. Yes. Thank same, you. Same thing. That's, that's the difficulty of pronouncing it. I like sometimes just, now which pill is that in? And so the norethindrone is in the content of our classically known, our mini pills. Um, and so basically this article reviews abnormal uterine bleeding in teens and really reviews the, the idea that it's really due to the immaturity of the HPO access and related to anovulatory cycles. And as our listeners are learning the new FIGO definitions, they're not so new anymore, but 
I think they're important to pay attention to that um, abnormal uterine bleeding for, further delineates bleeding as either structural or functional. And usually in our young girls, we see this heavy menstrual bleeding um, as functional. And so we always want to keep in mind their increased consideration for an underlying bleeding disorder like von Willebrand's disease. Um, but they're really focusing on sort of the immaturity of the HPO axis as the young girls traverse puberty and adolescence. And we usually manage them, uh, not with low-dose pills, but um, usually medical treatment like IV estrogen, various pill tapers, progesterone regimens, Depo-Provera, the IUD, um, and then things like tranexamic acid and Amicar. And these are kind of all in our armamentarium to treat acute uh, abnormal uterine bleeding in our adolescents. So basically the our, the main options for progesterone in our patients in the United States would be uh, norethindrone, so as Dr. Hillard said, our mini, our mini pill options, and then norethindrone acetate, which would be agestin, and then medroxyprogesterone acetate, which would be Provera. Um, and so those are sort of the main modalities that are used, and the article sort of addresses which hormone regimen would be best for AUB, what are we thinking about for poly or for uh, premature ovarian insufficiency and thinking about ADVAC for endometriosis. Uh, and so this study really looks mainly at the role of norethindrone in an emergency setting where bleeding is acute and severe, uh, leading to hospitalization and maybe concerns for hemostatic uh, instability or symptomatic anemia. And they chose progesterone only instead of OCPs due to concerns about contraindications, uh, fear about the closure of epiphyseal, ep the epiphyseal plates, I mean, enunciation problems today, and avoidance of nausea, which definitely has come up in the past with estrogen use in our teens. So what they used was norethindrone, five milligrams TID for 21 days, and they would use BID dosing if the girls were less than 55 kilograms, and then 10 milligrams TID if they were over 55 kilograms. So in response to this article, there was a really nice letter to the editor um, from Drs. Ari, Aku, and Kambar from Turkey, and they really wanted to talk about other options. They basically debated the use of norethindrone first line and favored birth control pills. And, and do you want to talk a little bit about that letter? I thought it was an interesting debate and discussion because it definitely comes up a lot. It's interesting to bring up the topic, and I don't think that either the original publication, that the JPEG publication, or the letter to the editor um, fully address all of the issues, but what they together raise for me is how little actual data that we have in looking at abnormal bleeding and, and typically anovulatory bleeding in adolescents. Um, we have classically been using, and I was taught to use high-dose birth control pills, my, uh, my Bible of a reference, the, <laughs> the Sparoff uh, reproductive endocrinology text that uh, Leon Sparoff taught me to use um, high-dose combination pills, and it works pretty well, but I have found over the years, because I have used it, the, the combination pill regimen over the years, a lot of nausea for a lot of patients. We are giving very high-dose uh, doses of estrogen to our patients. And it always surprises me when I have a patient who isn't nauseated with that regimen. And um, so on the basis of that really high rate of, of symptoms and the severe nausea that can be associated with high-dose estrogens, 
in the combination pill, I have really abandoned the combined pill regimen. And my choice is not norethindrone, but my drug of choice is medroxyprogesterone acetate. And I base that on a uh, randomized trial by Monroe, uh, M-U-N-R-O, that looked at combined pills in high dose versus medroxyprogesterone acetate in high dose. And what he found was that they had equal efficacy, but many fewer side effects with the high dose progestins. So I am now absolutely convinced and in the camp of high dose (laughs) progestins, but not for the reasons that these authors argue. And I get a little upset when I hear the argument about closure of epiphysy, (laughs) because I I have reviewed that literature really quite carefully um, we did, uh, Susan Ernst and I did a, a debate a few years back about the Ashley case and, and the attempts to um, limit growth in girls with significant developmental delay. And so I looked very carefully at the original articles from the 50s and 60s where the pediatric endocrinologists were trying to limit growth in height for girls that were uh, projected to be too tall. Now, I sometimes tell this to my patients and they kind of look at me like I'm crazy. You mean doctors thought that it was too ba- it was bad to be too tall? And <laughs> yes, there was a time when doctors and patients and parents thought it was it was bad for girls and women to be too tall. Um, but to, if you look at those original studies, they were using doses that were multiple times what we are using today in terms of equivalence. And furthermore, they weren't very successful in limiting growth. So my conclusion is that the idea that we would close the epiphyses with a short course of estrogen therapy, I think is is not correct. So that's not my reason for uh, for avoiding the combined pills, but my own practice, I avoid uh, estrogens in a combined pill because of the uh, side effect of nausea. Yeah, and I think that was sort of what this always gets everyone their blood flowing because these are like, ironically, for abnormal uterine bleeding blood flowing, just sort of d- discussing everyone's optimum regimen and, um, and the side effect profile too. So you're using high dose MPA, um, medroxyprogesterone acetate. What is your regimen? So it's the, the same regimen. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same regimen that, that was used by Monroe. And it's 20 milligrams of medroxyprogesterone acetate TID for seven days followed by 20 milligrams a day for another 21 days, if you can get it. And most of the time you don't get quite that long an extension of amenorrhea. They will start to break through and have bleeding. Um, And one of the things that I think is so important, if you think about the pathophysiology and what's going on, we're postulating that we have a dyssynchronous proliferated endometrium. So we have a thick endometrium that is not normal that has not been shed in a normal way when someone is, is bleeding heavily or has had prolonged bleeding. And so you have to eventually shed that excessively proliferated endometrium. And that's what eventually has to happen. You stop the regimen of combined pills or you stop the regimen of high dose progestins, then you will shed that endometrium. You'll have probably heavy bleeding and you have to warn the patients about the heavy bleeding you may need to use NSAIDs or 
um, tranexamic acid for the heavy bleeding. And then you're going to want to do something for maintenance. And typically what I would do would be a one a day pill after that endometrium has been shed. But you have to shed that endometrium. You can't just go from your taper down to a one a day pill because you still would then have that excessively proliferated endometrium. Yeah. And would your one a day pill be something like 10 milligrams a day of Provera or are you thinking of a birth control pill? So I would typically then go to a combined pill at that point, unless there are contraindications. And not a 20 microgram, nothing under 30. Exactly. It would be a 30 (laughs) 30 microgram as per our previous discussion. (laughs) I just want you to know I'm taking notes. (laughs) This is is perfect. Um, This is why we do the podcast. It's very helpful. But um, that was great. And so that's, I think that was what I found really great about the article and then the letter and then the response to the letter is this wonderful international debate on the same topic. So Well, and and it's um, fair to have the debate because as I say, I'm basing my actions on one randomized prospective trial. Um, we just don't have that much data. And it's, you know, the, the paper that was published gave us some additional data that it is successful. But we're, well, many of us are, you know, have our own regimens. And, and so I'd, I'd love to see more papers submitted to JPEG that would do a randomized control trial. Exactly. And I think this is something that's definitely in the family planning and uh, other parts of the PAG literature is managing breakthrough bleeding and nuisance bleeding, whatever we want to call it, on variety of um, hormone methods that we use for birth control or, you know, managing menstrual cycles, because I don't think we do understand all the pathophysiology of, you know, what's going on at the neovascularization from these hormones, or is it AUB or things we don't clearly have conquered yet to manage ideally. Well, hi, Dr. Dietrich. Welcome to our JPAG podcast here with Dr. Paula Hillard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're happy to have you. You're our first guest. You're our inaugural podcast guest. Well, thank you. I am happy to be the guinea pig. (laughs) (laughs) We're happy it worked. Um, Well, we're going to talk to you today about your article in June's uh, JPAG edition titled The Gynecologic Management of Pediatric and Adolescent Patients with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome um, with Dr. Hernandez. And and basically, this was a really nice uh, 10-year chart review uh, looking at 156 patients with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and 26 specifically seen by PAG providers that you discussed in this article. Um, And then just for our listeners, because we have a lot of uh, residents and medical students who have been listening. Um, Ehlers-Danlos is an autosomal dominant connective tissue disorder with 13 different subtypes. So this article nicely reviews it for those of us PAG doctors. Um, and many of these patients we do see have really menstrually related problems, uh, exacerbation of their menstrual symptoms, such as joint pain and laxity, sort of like a catamenial um, exacerbation of their um, disorder. And so it can really be tricky in our GYN realm because they have other comorbid diagnoses, uh, specifically things like migraines with aura and underlying bleeding disorders and various coagulopathies. So I thought this was a really interesting and timely article for me because I had been seeing several patients referred with EDS, the common abbreviation, and there's just not a lot out in the literature. And there's certainly not a section in the CDC medical eligibility criteria for this disorder. Uh, is that what made you both think about doing this review or had you had certain situations that 
triggered the idea? Well, I mean, really, you know, I would say that we, you know, obviously have a big genetics department at Texas Children's Hospital, and we see a lot of very unique um, genetic conditions. But many of these patients who are cared for in our pediatric genetics clinics um, were having uh, menstrual-related issues. And so our genetics colleagues started to reach out to us once they reached the age of menarche. And um, patients and families were kind of requesting um, someone's input to help them out. Because on the genetic side of things, you know, they frequently handle many of the musculoskeletal concerns with referrals to orthopedics, but hadn't really specifically dealt with a lot of the gynecologic questions. Right. And so um, as many of these patients started to pop up in our clinic and we were asking them questions, um, you know, it's interesting because not only would we get the perspective of the child who's affected, but oftentimes it ran in the family and we had the perspective of mom or dad or both in terms of um, some of what they had experienced. And so we thought, you know, goodness, we're seeing more of these patients. And <laughs> it may be that, you know, this is a condition that if you really kind of sort it out, it's, it tends to be, you know, a little bit more common than something like MRKH, which we see a lot in PAG circles. Right. And so it's out there and it's common um, and I think that it's probably number one underdiagnosed uh, because of the spectrum in presentation, as you can kind of see from our review. Right, right. It's interesting. And then it looks like you, like you even mentioned right now, you could have easily identified even more patients. You, you've really tailored the review to those seen by PAG providers. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm guessing that is because PAG providers do such a thorough review of menstrual history and maybe it's not documented as well by other providers? Yeah, I mean, we had to use the, the data that we had re relevant to gynecologic concerns. And as we identified some of these individuals who had not seen a PAG provider, um, unfortunately, we didn't have enough history um, in many cases to really determine if they fit into one category or another whether that was having heavy menstrual bleeding, irregular cycles, painful cycles, um, perhaps premenstrual uh, symptoms. And so, um, you know, a lot of times that information about puberty, uh, menarche, and menstrual concerns was not included. Right, right, which is just another plug for our younger trainees to always include that. I think those are such important um, key history points. I know Dr. Hillard's there championing that as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and then I think the other part I didn't really appreciate was that there's so many other things uh, impactful in the GYN realm related to EDS that I just didn't even think about regularly, like unexplained labial edema, which we see that often, and it often does go unexplained. Uh, things like pelvic prolapse in our younger population, uh, and then the absence of other risk factors, things like dyspronia and vulvodynia or bruising and bleeding fo following routine surgery. So I, I think that's really some interesting red flags to keep in mind. Uh, and certainly these are first visits in your review were age 14.5, which is, or 14 and a half, which is right up our alley for when they mm -hmm. see PAG and teen providers. Right. 
So, um, and then table two in your article, I always like to highlight some of the really helpful tables, really depicts a nice collection of the comorbid diagnoses in girls with EDS that we can yes. keep an eye on. Um, so what did you learn basically about prescribing patterns for menstrual management in this group? Right. Well, you know, I think many of these girls um, had been uh, potentially started on medications at an outside clinic, perhaps by even an adult OBGYN prior to seeing us. Um, sometimes pediatricians who felt comfortable prescribing might prescribe um, a pill. Um, and interestingly, over time, I mean, just seeing many more of these patients and also, honestly, just hearing from the moms of these little girls, um, many more of them preferred progestin-only options um, as opposed to combination options. And, you know, uh, some of this may be related to the spectrum and presentation and that some of them have cardiogenic uh, components. You know, um, there does seem to be an association among girls with uh, Ehlers-Danlos and uh, POTS or postural orthostatic hypotension. And, um, you know, so it's one of those things with this kind of dysregulation um, of their autonomic system. And so some of them have like a, a formal diagnosis of, you know, dysautonomia. And so, you know, with that, sometimes the estrogen component doesn't seem to do as well for them, both from a joint standpoint, which has been kind of supported by some of the the research that we've done in our reviews. Um, and I think the less well understood component is among those with uh, situations of overlap, because not everybody has a vascular type, but we also don't really understand the numbers of individuals who are at risk for aortic root dilatation. Right. And who have complications related to that, and who may be at risk for, you know, venous stasis related to that. Um, and, and so interestingly, many more of them just felt uh, better on a progestin-only pill and just, um, you know, uh, over time, it, it tended to be their preference because they had tried, they had tried both. Right, right. And did you, did you find that was the case as well when it came to contraception counseling or was that more geared for menstrual management that they chose that? Or both? Uh, for both, both yeah. reasons. And, and I did have patients who obviously, um, you know, at the time <laughs> that we uh, performed this particular uh, study, you know, we really only had one progesterone-only pill available on the market here in the U.S. And now we have, you know, a, another progesterone-only pill, which is great with drospirinone. And so that gives some additional opportunity. But, you know, um, it relies on people being able to adhere to pill taking every day. And so some of them did prefer to do a depot injection and get something every three months and others preferred LARCs. And I would say of the, the longer acting methods, many more were interested in an IUD if they really didn't have problems with like hemorrhagic cysts. Um, since we know that an IUD won't necessarily suppress a hemorrhagic cyst for, for individuals in, in all cases. Um, but we're with, uh, an IUD. 
Yeah, I thought that was a great um, approach for these patients. And you, you talked about how you kind of address their special concerns in the operating room, mm-hmm. um, for, sort of things like positioning, which sometimes we take for granted that, um, but maybe that was a mobility issue for some of these girls. And right. ultrasound guidance. And, yes. uh, and, and it is important to be thoughtful about concern for perforation, because in some ways we think, we probably think of these girls more like a postpartum breastfeeding mom, uterus potentially, um, based on their underlying disorder. Um, yeah. And well, then I thought- interesting because when you probe and you do actually a, a uterine sound, you know, just as we're teaching our trainees, um, it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't have the same kind of firm, uh, muscular feeling that you, you feel at the fundus, right? When you're <laughs> placing one in the office setting, right. it feels soft. And when you look at it on ultrasound, sometimes you're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting because I can see I'm at the fundus and I can see that that's where my instrument is, but I could not feel that. That is interesting. So, so maybe that plays a, a particularly useful role in these patients so that you can reduce the risk of perforation. Of perforation, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and they, I thought they really, um, you really showed some nice highlights about their outcomes, such as the implant almost a quarter of the girls had amenorrhea, which, which parallels what most people do. And then um, 80% had occasional spotting after two to five years and all of them retained their IUD when they chose that. So Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's very telling. Mm -hmm. The next one would be what they, what they recommended to a friend. (laughs) That would be the adolescent next question. I know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then um, did you see any pregnancies or did you counsel them about pregnancy risk at this time? How, what did you do to approach that? And these yeah, things? I mean, I would say that our population was, you know, a little bit younger and not really asking those questions. We did not have any patients who were pregnant or who um, had been pregnant in the past. Um, but we do start to talk to them kind of in an age appropriate fashion Mostly just because, you know, as gynecologists, we're thinking about at that time in their life, kind of menstrual related issues and perhaps hemorrhagic cysts. And in this population, they have kind of a a semblance of a bleeding disorder, if you will. It just happens to be related to their collagen and their connective tissue. And so it's a bleeding disorder in a different way. And some of them do have problems with expanding hemorrhagic cysts. And so we're addressing those things. But We do talk about um, the future because um, obviously these individuals are grouped um, in a category of many, including women with Marfans and and even women with Turner syndrome, for that matter, who fall into a category of higher risk for aortic root dilatation. And the hard thing is, is that no paper really addresses any hard and fast numbers in this specific population, they all get lumped together, right? And we already know that in our population, mortality risk um, related to cardiogenic complications, either antepartum or during delivery, during delivery or or postpartum. And so, um, you know, kind of in, in maternal fetal medicine papers, they sort of put this group of individuals into that same category of risk, but we don't have the hard and fast numbers. And I think it's just, you know, that uh, it's not a very well-discussed diagnosis and there's very limited information out there, um, which I think is, is unfortunate because it's perhaps uh, a reason 
to explain why some women have a spontaneous uterine rupture without a prior risk factor, um, why some women have cervical incompetence. I mean, we know that there are certain risk factors, but, you know, this is one of them. And that's going to then place them at risk for, you know, preterm labor, um, perhaps a, a malpresentation, and then also, you know, early rupture of membranes. Um, so, you know, all risks, uh, no question, to this, <laughs> right. this group of individuals. And I, I think it just needs to be better studied, not only in gynecology circles, and we are the perfect, perfect providers to be able to liaise with this uh, population and learn more from them. And, um, and on the obstetric side, more, mm. more understanding is clearly needed as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it broke up just a little bit when you talked about the cardiac risk. What do you, what did you feel was a cardiac risk during pregnancy for this? Like you said, um, some, what did so, you say? Yeah. Aortic root dilatation. Yeah. Um, would be the biggest one with potential rupture, you know, similar to, you know, how we counsel our Turner's patients, you know? Right. right. Yeah. I think you quoted a number and it got a little fuzzy. So I was yeah, just... it's a, well, we know in Turner's it's about 2% mortality okay. risk. Yeah. And um, yeah, unfortunately, in this population that is less well studied, we, really we don't speculate. have a hard and fast number. Right, right. You sort of have to parallel the other diagnoses that are similar. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating. I think this, like you said, this is a great area to expand further research, research and growth and, and more submissions to JPAD addressing Agreed. this in our younger population. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share or, for our listeners about this excellent review? Can I ask a question really quickly? Sure, of course. So I'll, I'll certainly let Jen have the last last word. But um, I was I was impressed with the paper and the the work that you that you had done with this population and thinking about our own um, institution where these patients are seen. It sounds like one of your main links was with genetics, mm -hmm. um, which we certainly also see patients referred from genetics, but I also realized and, and had to look some things up, but at Stanford, there's a cardiology connective tissues disorder clinic. Yes. And Derm has a genetic disorders of skin clinic as mm -hmm. well. So I am thinking um, as we move forward that those genetics, cardiology, and Derm um, and to some extent, orthopedics and physical therapy, but they, they may not see quite as many of these, these patients, given that we're a tertiary care or quaternary care center, uh, <laughs> but really reaching out to those, those areas. And I wondered if you had had the experience of reaching out um, back to DERM, back to uh, genetics that had referred you a number of patients and sort of closing that loop so that you can see a few more of those patients who might be appropriate and could help them. I, I wonder what you've done in that regard. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we, we definitely have closed the loop with genetics and, you know, we're seeing more and more of those patients um, all the time because they're thrilled to have um, a resource to yeah. ask these questions that they're not as comfortable asking. Um, and, uh, you know, we have started to see and communicate a bit more with our cardiology colleagues um, um, among patients who do have some connective tissue disorders um, or maybe ultimately get diagnosed because of poor wound healing, you know, just like yeah. you mentioned, 
um, Paula. So I, you know, I think it's a really, really good point. And all of those um, avenues, I would, I would say, are possible ways that we can connect with these patients. And then, you know, the other thing that many of the um, the moms have recommended is that, you know, our society, that NASPAG, um, somehow get in touch with the Eller. So there's a National uh-huh. Ehlers-Danlos Society um, here in the U.S. And it's a pretty active group. They have a, you know, a very active web page. And, um, you know, people want to talk about what's happening to them. Because I hear it over and over from my patients that, um, you know, people just don't understand us and we don't behave the same way as, as other girls we feel. And so I, I do wonder about this spectrum of cardiogenic components and dysautonomic, uh, regulation and, and their ability to, um, kind of be affected by certain hormones in a different way. They don't, they don't always feel well on estrogen and sometimes feel better on progestin. Yeah, it's fascinating. It seems like this, group, this population has a great opportunity for all of us to work together with all the different caregivers who, who have touch points with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, one other practice where some of these patients may pop up is that they may have been evaluated for a bleeding disorder and everything came back negative, you know? Right. We have a couple of those, but I would say that the majority of the patients we get are still from genetics. Um, But I think that's another avenue as well for patients who haven't been diagnosed with anything and they've really studied them and, and done tier one, tier two, and tier three testing for patients who just don't seem to respond in the typical way to hormones to control their bleeding, it might be something else. And it might be this. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. Well, lots of great areas we still can explore, especially in our in our PAG girls. Well, Dr. Hillard, any other thoughts before we wrap up our podcast? No, I want to thank Dr. Dietrich for joining us. And uh, as our inaugural guest, uh, (laughs) guest author, we appreciate it, guest senior author. And uh, um, Jen, I've very much enjoyed uh, hearing about your your, um, clinic and your patients that you see and some good ideas. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jen. We appreciate it. Keep them coming. We'll invite you back. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) Thank you, ladies, so much. Okay, bye. Have a good night. You too. And I think that concludes our June journal podcast uh, with Dr. Nicole Tyson, myself, and Dr. Hillard, our editor-in-chief. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out and email us. Dr. Hillard, what's our email again? So um, do we have a podcast email? We don't. We've been using your (laughs) editor-in-chief email. Good question. Good question. So that's where I don't know jpeg editor-in-chief as if it's all one word at gmail.com and i would be happy to to hear comments or or suggestions and i think maybe that's a new future idea is get our own podcast email i'll look into that too <laughs> all, right. all right well thank you everyone for thank you Dr. Tyson. you're welcome okay bye mm-hmm.